everybody, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision, brought to you by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. My name is Dr. Bill Takeshta, and I'm very pleased to be your host this evening. And tonight, we have Mr. Richard Retta from the Junior Blind of America, who's going to be talking to us about some of the things that are very helpful for those high school students that are then transitioning into college or a vocational program or into employment. So, uh, Richard, thank you very much for being on the show this evening. Hello, Dr. Bill, and thank you for having me uh, participate on Let's Talk About Vision and talk about uh, transition, junior blind, as well as other programs that may be of benefit to students out there who are transitioning from high school to the world of college and work. You know, this is a really very, very important topic, uh, Richard, because at our clinic, you know, we see so many children who later grow up to be junior high schoolers and then high schoolers, and then they really don't know what they're going to do. They talk about 12th grade, and they're going to go to the prom, or they're going to go to grad night, and they're excited about graduation. But when I ask them, hey, did you apply for a college? Are you going to go to junior college? Are you going to go to trade school? There's so many of them that really don't know what to do. And in talking to them, many times they really just don't know how to live by themselves. Uh, so tell me about the, the program that you folks have at the Junior Blind. And what exactly is it that you guys are doing? And thank you, Dr. Bill. It's a good, very good question. And I, I want to make it clear, although I am representative of Junior Blind, I do want to speak about various transition programs that I'm aware of and uh, out there. But speaking particular to the organization I work for, Junior Blind of America, which is over 60 years old, we, we run several transition programs around the state of California. Uh, in our Los Angeles office for the past, I want to say, 13 years now, we run a program known as STEP. STEP is a acronym for Student Transition and Enrichment Program. It's a program that we run on our campus throughout the year, September through June, uh, with our summer program being quite different. Throughout the year, once, sometimes twice a month, we run three-day workshops that begin on a Friday and end on a Sunday where students will come to our campus. Students, I say that age 16 and older, up to age eight, perhaps age 22 or 23, who are referred to us by the Department of Rehabilitation, uh, a book agency that provides resources to students and adults who are blind and disabled who uh, need help in returning to work and needing work resources. They are referred to us, and we do workshops that work on preparing students for life after high school. Uh, this weekend, we're doing a financial literacy, smart money, smart goals workshop where we talk about budgeting, budgeting for college, budgeting for living on your own after high school or living on SSI until you get your first job. And we explore those various pathways that will help students prepare for life. Uh, on a budget, as, as we all have to live within our means and, and applying for credit cards and the ups and downs of, of using a credit card while you're on a limited income. Uh, we also do other workshops such as networking, such as uh, cooking. We were talking about cooking earlier, uh, talking about uh, workshops that get to meet adults who are blind, who are successful. In fact, next month we're taking them to a 
uh, I believe it's the NSC convention since it's in, it's in town and we want them to network with adults who are employed, who are out there doing things from teachers, lawyers, doctors, to musicians, to people who have various walks of life. So we really want to introduce our students to a variety of, of career paths. Often students come to us who are they're the only blind person in their school system, and often until they come to our programs or, or similar programs, they don't know that there are many other blind students out there or think that they are unable to be successful or their parents think that way. So it's, it's up to us to really educate them and introduce them to all these resources. Uh, similarly, in Northern California, a program that I started three years ago, uh, after having worked for Department of Rehab for several years, um, our transition and rehabilitation program is a more community-based program, Dr. Bill, where we basically take students, we we go out, do a weekend workshop, we stay in the community at a youth hostel in Sacramento, and then we do a lot of community integration. We visit job sites. We take a lot of public transportation. We're really enhancing and maximizing the skills that they're getting throughout the school year from their mobility teacher, their TVI, and their regular ed programs and putting that to practice, visiting people on their jobs, giving a tour of their job site. That's basically, in a nutshell, a real, a real simple way of how we're serving high school students and college-age students in our programs. That is fantastic. Now, you had mentioned that uh, the, the regional center is sometimes involved do each of these students need to be a client of the regional center to participate in these different transition programs uh, here in California and across the United States? Um, what I what I was mentioning actually is the Department of Rehabilitation, which is similar, uh, different from I should say, than the regional center. The regional center will serve someone who has more than one disability. Often it's two or more disabilities. And having worked in the rehabilitation system, I've worked with several students who are multiply, multiply disabled, hearing impaired, uh, deaf or hard of hearing, have learning disabilities or other cognitive impairments. Uh, that's where the regional center would come in because they will serve them lifelong from birth uh, well on up until their 80s or 90s whereas the Department of Rehabilitation is a program that is uh, a, available to adults and young adults who are visually impaired and have disabilities that are significant that would assist them in returning to work, finding employment, and returning to work. And then once they, ret they find work or return to work, depending on the case, their, their case would be closed successfully. Okay. It's a federal program. So one of the first things that uh, students and parents, as well as teachers uh, of these students, they should then look into the State Department of Rehabilitation to enroll the student into that program and see what types of step programs or transition programs are available. Is that correct? Yeah, and, and in many states, if not all states, the Rehabilitation application process will begin at age 16. Now, I've heard up in Washington State that the uh, rehabilitation process can start as early as age 13 or 14, which I believe is very proactive. In California, the practice has been for many years that students would apply by age 16 and start receiving transition services, primarily in the summer and or on the weekends when there are weekend workshops. 
Um, obviously, those programs are, are made available to students, such as ours, on the weekends or on the summer when it doesn't interfere with their school schedule. Now, are there ways that you try to reach out to these students and get them to sign up? Because I often find that there's many times high school students where they say, ah, no, I don't need that. I know how to do everything. Um, I don't use my cane because I don't need it. I see fine. And then the whole time that they're telling us that, mom or dad in the background, they're shaking their head so violently, nope, nope, (laughs) he is not traveling well. So many times I, I find that these high school students are not really that eager to reach out for these programs. Um, how do you try to attract these kids to sign up? Uh, it's no easy task. I, I think in, in the situations where we've been most successful, we've visited them, we've visited their school, or we brought our show or our outreach or a what we call a mobile workshop to their school site where they're uh, unable to get out of it because it's, it's something that we're offering for an hour or two in, on the school day with Obviously, the parents and teachers' permission, we're, we're introducing them to our programs, rehabilitation, and when possible, we're bringing people who are guest speakers to the school site who are successful, who are uh, in, in the best of all worlds doing the job that this person, this student who's reluctant to uh, acknowledge their visual impairment, doing the job that he or she wants to pursue as an adult. And if we can make that mentor connection, uh, the doors open up and students will begin to decide that maybe these programs aren't so bad, that they're not so clinical or medical, and they're they're going to be a lot, they're full of more social uh, activities than they thought. And, and, and we try to tell them about all the fun things we do uh, throughout our activities so that they can meet other people there who are experiencing similar vision conditions. Yeah, that's actually what I do. When I have some of our patients that come to our center, I will tell them about a lot of fun things that you guys do. Some of them pretty wild. You know, you guys will possibly teach them to surf or to ski or you guys go to the snow amusement parks. And then I always tell them, hey, and there's boys and girls there. You know, so they sometimes will get excited about that. What are some of the really fun things that you do in addition to those educational uh, tasks? Well, we we do a lot of recreation and leisure, and and rec and leisure enrichment does fall under the expanded core curriculum, which is a a curriculum referred to when teaching uh, young adults and visually impaired students in the the K-12 system. So in in the rec and leisure area, we're doing a lot of things. Uh, We'll go to the mall. We'll do a scavenger hunt. And and disguised in that scavenger hunt is, uh, a series of questions where they have to go and ask a lot of questions, like ask for their first ever job application and, and do a lot of those social skills that are um, very curriculum-based but disguised as, as a scavenger hunt and, and as a competition. So they're doing a series of tasks with um, two or three people in a group where there are about four or five groups going around the mall, for example, asking for certain things and, and having to really put themselves out of their comfort zone. And we disguise it in, again, the scavenger hunt where it's fun. Uh, they're having to use their canes, their monoculars, and then they win points and prizes for, for being engaged and, and asking questions and, and having our volunteers and staff, and, and often some of our staff are visually impaired themselves, so they serve as good role models. Um, we, we do other things. Um, 
I know that in the summer, during our summer program, they went to the Orange County Fair. They We've done things as a, hanging out at the Santa Monica Pier boardwalk and, and doing a variety of things. If, if students are more academic, they want to go from, to a museum, the Getty Villa, we'll, we'll take them there. So we really want to introduce them and immerse them into cultural activities as well. You know, that really sounds like a lot of fun, too. You know, it's a great way... It's brilliant how you've integrated doing these tasks along with a scavenger hunt or something fun. So uh, they're using these skills and tools they've learned in a real functional way. You know, in terms of with working with these teenagers and such, what would you say is really the most common concern of these teenagers that do come to your programs? Uh, Would you say that they will convey to you that, you know, I really just don't know how to do these things to live on my own? Or do they say that it's really more of a of a, of a goal for them to be able to go so that they can learn something more specific, such as learning to use a cane or braille? What, what, what are some of the more common things that you hear from your, your students who do attend? You know, I'll answer that by saying... One of the things that I do during our workshops is we do, during our introduction of the workshop, goal setting, we, we do introductions and icebreakers, getting to know each other. And through that process, we ask them, what are goals? Once we introduce to them what the workshop is and, and, and attending the workshop, they have a general idea of what they're going to get out of the weekend. For example, again, this weekend, financial literacy, smart money, smart goals, really planning for the future, budgeting, and, and those types of activities. They know that much going into it. What they don't know is the curriculum that we have prepared for them. So we ask them, based on what you know, what are the goals? What are some of the goals you want to get out of this weekend? And we check in with them throughout the weekend. And then we also do, at the end, a, a takeaway or a wrap-up where what did you get out of this weekend? What did you get out of this weekend that you were surprised? Uh, what are you going to take away and, and apply to your life immediately from these workshops? And, and, and that's varied, and, and that procures a lot of useful information, but also what students tell me throughout these, these icebreakers is that transportation is, is often a barrier or a challenge to them because they don't drive. And it's not it's not that they're hung up on driving. They know they can't drive. It's more of just figuring out alternate ways of hanging out with friends, going out on dates, and uh, whether they're using paratransit or Uber or the bus or, or a variety of tasks. And, and the more independent they are, the better off they are, um, able to take the bus, whereas some are challenged with certain other disabilities where they're having to use uh, drivers to take them. So it's transportation, uh, it's access to income, it's, it's and for some, getting a part-time job and, and, and having access to work um, just like their sighted peers would in, in high school and having those types of jobs, working at the fast school food tutoring and doing those types of jobs. You know, that's so impressive. You know, I'm 53, Richard, and uh, when I was in high school, I never had any class, not even a single lecture that talked about finances or learning about what is a stock or what's a bond or how to right. put money in the bank. I knew, I knew none of that, and it's great that you guys are doing this. Do you also inform them or educate them about financial resources such as uh, I know some people 
depending on their household income, they may be eligible for supplemental security income from Social Security. Yes. In fact, many of our students, if not all of them, are eligible for and or are on SSI and are receiving that and using that to to get by until they acquire their first job. At the very same time, we're also bringing in guest speakers from Disability Rights California and, and advocacy organizations such as that to talk about SSI, but not only SSI, Dr. Bill, but uh, student earned income, which is a in short a, a program through SSI that even the federal government often doesn't recognize that allows students to earn up to $1,700 a month between the ages of 18 and 22 and to retain all of their SSI. Now, the reason why that is so is to really encourage students who are reluctant to go to work to get a job, to find a job, whether it's a summer or seasonal job or not, and be able to transition off of SSI and or just get that work experience without any penalties. And, and it's one of those under very underutilized programs that exist out there to encourage people to work. And it, it's programs like that that we uncover and, and show to the students that are out there and, and simplify it, this government language so that they can grasp it and uh, the, the sooner they find work, the more uh, competent they are and, and with their social skills. I, I will share with you, Dr. Bill, uh, one of the one of the stories I tell all my students and students I, I introduce my programs to that I, I I'm 40. I, ever since I was 16, I've always had a job. I was raised by a family who with a strong work ethic. At the very same time, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Um, my first job was in fast food. It was Carl's Jr. It was flipping burgers. It was a great job. And I tell students this following line: It was the best job and the worst job I ever had. And, and I explained to them, it was the best job I ever had because it was my very first paycheck. It wasn't a weekly allowance. It wasn't money that my grandma gave to me or money that I had saved up in my piggy bank from birthdays. It was my own paycheck, and it was something that I was very proud of, uh, flipping burgers, putting fries in the fryer, and going home with grease on my face, even though I was usually impaired. And it was great. I could go and buy CDs and do everything I wanted. But at this very same time, it was the worst job I ever had because... I had to give up my weekends. I had to polish my shoes and wear a uniform and a name tag, and I had to um, really uh, say no to social obligations so I could work. But it was a learning experience, and I had one of those epiphanies one day when I was cleaning tables with a dirty rag and cleaning the bathrooms going, you know, if I don't go to college, I really won't be able to do a lot of the jobs that I really want to do out there, and I don't want this to be the only job I can have. So as as the line goes, there was fire in my belly, and it really it was awakening to me that I need to really take the rest of my high school year seriously. So from going from a C average to a B, B-plus average, really, that job really helped me uh, identify what my career goals would and wouldn't be. And that's often a good story into talking about it's important to get work experience uh, and really get out there. No matter how blind or disabled you are, you really ought to get some work experience while you're in college because it really will impact your resume and your ability to get work and be successful at it. Yeah, I think that's such an important part of life. Whether you have a perfect vision or you're, you're blind or you're hearing impaired or you have any other difficulty, you know, that's one thing you have to learn is that if you are going to earn income, there's certain sacrifices that you do have to make. 
But I think it's so great that you're able to explain to them that, yes, you were visually impaired, but you were still working at Carl's Jr. and doing these things. And I'll never forget the first time that I met a woman who was totally blind. And she came to work at the Center for the Part She Cited for us. And we were just casually talking about eating at McDonald's. And she says, you know, I used to make these salads at McDonald's. This was my job. And I said, you were working at McDonald's? I asked her, did you have vision at that time? She said, no, you don't need any vision to make salads, but that's what I would do. I would make salads there. And I was a doctor at that time, and I was educated, and I took all of these classes on low vision. But we never talked about how people with low vision could be successful. And this past weekend, I was at a function, and there were many, many people that came to this event, and these were people who were not in the field of vision care. And we had some of our students who are now, one of them is 16, the other is 20, and the other is 24. And they came up, and they were talking about how the care that the Center for the Parties cited and the visual aids and the things that we prescribed for them, how it would help them. And they were now talking about how they now have their jobs. And one young man, he actually just graduated from Stanford Law. And after the event, so many people who came to this event, they said, I had no idea that children who were blind could do these things. And these were doctors and lawyers and, you know, very, very intelligent people. But many times I think our society doesn't know that students who may have low vision or be totally blind can do these things. And this is why they they need to go to a program such as the STEP program. What do you think about that comment? I, I mean, I think this is why the STEP program is so important. Because if the parents don't know, the doctors don't know, uh, the kids may not know what they could do, and they need to hear it from folks such as you or other mentors. I I couldn't agree more, Dr. Bill. And it it starts at a younger age. Really, the younger we can introduce students to the programs that are out there for them, whether it's Junior Blind or Braille Institute or any of the programs out there that provide recreation and, and other opportunities through camps, we don't want to, them to be experiencing uh, kind of an identity crisis at 16 if they're blind since birth. Uh, we really want them to get engaged so that they're more, they're more comfortable, mom and dad's more comfortable through things such as our summer camp and family camps. Families, that's one of the more um, good things we do, too, is we have camp and family camps and parents come together and they do a lot of networking and they feel not alone and they don't feel overwhelmed. Uh, when they're raising their child, they're blind, and they're they're immediately connected to more resources. So that's really a good bonding for parents when they come to these programs such as camps or other things we do on our campus to bring carnivals and other activities that really not just bring students together for the first time, but moms and dads and and, uh, grandparents. And that's really very, very helpful. Now, what do you do about the parents where... I have run into times where we have had patients, and these are intelligent young people, and I'm saying, well, you got to try to go on some of these trips so you could go and visit the different colleges. Maybe you want to go and visit 
Stanford and Berkeley. You want to visit Ohio State. You want to visit NYU. Visit all of these. Go with your schools. And the kids often say, my parents don't want me to go to college. And, you know, Richard, I ask Michael, why do you think your parents don't want you to go to college? If you go to college, you're going to make money. You're going to make more money than you would if you didn't go to college. I know, Dr. Bill. Why don't they want you to go? And some of these students will tell me it's because the parents are dependent on that child's Social Security income. What do you say? Have you experienced situations like this where the parents really don't want to let their kids go? I wish I hadn't, but unfortunately, this is very true in, in the populations I work with as a rehabilitation counselor in Northern California, working with students. Uh, I have. I've, I've seen that a lot at, at the School for the Blind. We saw that a lot, and it's it's heartbreaking because the students. Are, are empowered to go to college, the teachers, the support system, the IEP team is very engaged, and then mom and dad just are reluctant and have a, a lot of persuasion over their child. And even at 18, as competent as some of the students are, they, they are in a quandary. And it takes them, it, it almost takes them to separate from their family to a degree and say, I'm going to do this with or without you. And it, it almost takes the that special teacher, that special advocate to take them under their wings and be that surrogate parent as they say, you know what, mom and dad may not like me or may disown me for a while, but I'm going to do this. It really takes a unique support system if mom and dad believe that way. And we've seen that happen on occasion where teachers would adopt a child, a student at their on their 18th birthday and really let them be the adult, make a decision, but encourage them to do the, what they feel is right for them if, if that's what they wanted to do. Uh, and trying to be delicate with the family so that all pies wouldn't be uh, cut, but at the same time being as direct and empowering to the student as possible. It, it, it's real. It has. It, it really continues to be a real delicate balance, and um, it, it's. It happens. It does happen. Yeah, I don't really know what the the solution is. There, there's been times that I have tried to intervene, and uh, some of the parents have become very angry and this you don't you don't understand the situation that our family is in we do not have money we rely on this supplemental security income to pay for the rent and uh, some of the families have it very difficult and we also see other situations where the parents really just don't even seem to care about the child what about these situations what if a parent just doesn't seem to care how can we get the child to get the parental um, approval or the signature so they could go to a transition program? Often we, I haven't seen that as much, but I do know in circumstances, parents that are in the background or don't really connect with the child at all, and we'll let them in some respect do whatever, which can be a double-edged sword. They're They're not involved in their life so that the student can really make bad choices in their life. And it really, again, is up to that external support system if mom and dad aren't there or siblings aren't there to keep the student grounded or provide them with a good support system and good guidance. Again, Dr. Bill, it comes down to that external support system, teachers, rehab counselors, other advocates, doing as much as they can if the student is a minor and keeping in mind that mom and dad are still the 
guardian, even if they're not involved. And if not, asking the student if the grandparents would uh, help out if, if they're able to. Oh. So really trying to identify what support systems within their immediate family are there to try to respect that as much as possible. And then if not, then having an external support system in place when the student's ready. Can you share some stories about how beneficial is it for these young kids? I call them young kids because they're still 16, 17, but how beneficial is it for them socially to be with other students who are also visually impaired? As you stated, some of these kids have never met another student who's visually impaired. And uh, by meeting other kids their same age who are similar, has that been very, very helpful? Or do do some of these kids uh, even date each other? Because I hear it all the time, Richard, where the kids say, I don't know if I'll ever have a boyfriend or girlfriend because I'm blind. Well, we do talk about dating, sexuality, and in that content during our workshops. We also do, I also do see students, again, it goes both ways. There are students who are visually impaired, who whose friends, all their friends are only visually impaired, and they don't have any sighted friends, and that can be a detriment at the very same time. So depending on where the student's at, if they have a balanced peer support of uh, sighted and blind students, that's great. But often if students only have one set of friends who are sighted or blind, we really try to introduce them to the other set of people so they can be uh, another means of, of resource. So if you're a visually impaired student who has all sighted friends, we really want you to connect with peers your age who have similar visual impairments so you can kind of figure out what are the shortcuts, what are the things that are going to make me successful from whether it's using uh, voiceover on the iPhone or JAWS on the laptop or Zoom text or just tips and tricks to be successful or tips and tricks to, to date or ask someone out, or just go out for a Coke or something. And at the very same time, we, we want students to have peers who are sighted um, so they can connect on, on levels that aren't just discussions that just don't surround blindness, because you really want to talk about, at the end of the day, other things than just your visual impairment or how you adapt to things to be well-rounded. That is so great. Have there been any kinds of statistics on this of the students who have gone through a transition program, such as the STEP program, has there been any studies that show that the kids who do participate in a transition program, that they are more successful in terms of either going to college or going to a uh, after-high school type of vocational training program or gaining employment compared to the kids who don't attend a transition program? Well, I will say that many of these transition programs that we know of, Junior Blind, the School for the Blind, and elsewhere, a lot of these programs are less than 20 years old, and in many cases, there's not a lot of study, formal studies out there that are indicating whether someone is more successful by having a transition program or not. I do know that informally, uh, Junior Blind, we are working on outcomes and, and, and doing evaluations and, and contacting alumni, students who've been a part of the STEP program for over 12 years, to see where they're at and if that's been a help and aid to them in, in finding employment, living on their own, and maximizing their, their functional limitations. So if, with that, we we are beginning to reach out to folks. 
Also, I know that um, the Hetland Center uh, program of Junior Blind up in Northern California has for many years been following the, the students after they graduate their apartment living program to see if students are still living on their own after they've left the program versus going home to mom and dad um, to measure their independent living. Um, and I know that that's informal. I know that the uh, Rehabilitation and Training Center, RRTC at Mississippi State, uh, has a lot of really good transition resources and studies. Uh, a lot of that was presented at the AER International Conference this July, and a lot of that's up there on the Mississippi State website, and there's a lot of studies on transition outcomes that I haven't had a lot of time to review, but I know it's out there. You know, in general, I, those in general, I, I do believe and want to believe that the more you engage, the more you get out there in the world, whether it's through our transition programs or to stay at home on the couch, the more successful, easier success will come to you. I should say. I I would agree with that a hundred percent. And I could just say to the listeners out there, for myself, maybe some of you don't know my story. I had normal, perfect vision until the age of 42, and I then developed a rare retinal condition. And as I was losing my vision and I was partially sighted, I just became isolated. I, I didn't want to participate in anything. I didn't want to participate in activities with my family or with my friends, and I definitely did not want to participate in anything with people who had vision impairment. But it, it suddenly came to a point in time where I realized I need to do something because I haven't done anything for the last six months other than stay at home and feel sorry for myself. And I, I met a couple of people who were visually impaired, and they showed me how they were doing all these things. And I said, wow, if he could do that, I could do it. And I'll have to be quite honest, Richard, I went to one of the ACB conventions. It may have been in Phoenix. I, I don't know quite exactly, but that was when I really first got to meet you very well. And I was just so impressed with the way that you were able to travel and get around that hotel. And, and you did everything just so effectively that I said, you know what, if this guy could do this, you know, I, I really got to get better with using my cane. And I started to receive orientation mobility lessons. But it was because of the fact that I did integrate myself with others with vision impairment and, and received the training and the instruction and gained all that knowledge. It has made a, a dramatic change to my life. So I, I personally owe a lot to thank you. And I know that the work that you're doing with these kids is going to make a world of difference. So uh, thank you for that as well. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Bill. It's a, it, I don't know if it's a calling. I, I started with the Department of Rehabilitation 13 years ago, uh, worked for rehab for nine years, worked for the Lighthouse in San Francisco for close to two years, and it's kind of a homecoming returning to junior blind after having received services as a young adult myself and, and working there prior to their, at their summer camps and then their rehabilitation program in college. Well, I think you're the right person for it because you – yourself have experienced being visually impaired during that same time in high school. You're, you're very, very encouraging, and you're a great mentor because you're showing these students that, yes, they could be independent and successful. 
Now, Richard, where can some of our listeners get more information about either a transition program in their area or if they even just want to get in touch with you if they have any questions? How can they do that? Well, I do have a lot of resources that I file in my email that I can, I'd be happy to send the folks and, and circulate that way. So for Junior Blind, our, our website is simply www.junior.blind.org. And I, I spell that out because often people will try to send me an email at jrblind.org and it never comes uh, to me. Uh, alternatively, my email is rruda at juniorblind.org. Uh, my number toll free. I think that's uh, able to be reached nationwide, 888-400-4522, and my extension is 460. Uh, again, Mississippi State has a lot of studies on tra- transition on their website. I think they update it fairly often. Uh, B.J. Lejeune and, and those folks out there really are, are passionate about following transition trends and, and, and reporting it and researching it, so I'm really proud of them. I know that the... Um, there are scholarships out there for students, which I have access to. There's a lot of um, internships that students can get involved in. One of the things that we do in the summer is we give students summer jobs, and, and they go for seven weeks, and they get a paycheck. And that's one of our goals to wow. make sure students get work experience, and then they come back to our dorm, and they mentor the younger students, and they, they get a full experience, and they in that work experience often uh, gives them the self-confidence that they didn't have or it maximizes it so that they are more geared to go to college or get a work uh, job, that is, if they haven't had a job prior to uh, coming to our program. And then that's, again, all that's sponsored by Departments of Rehabilitation. So they have to have a case of rehab. Rehab has to approve it. And if rehab approves it and approaches us, then we can serve them. You know, and I, I really have to say, this country, the United States, is such a, a wonderful country. I mean, because if we think about this, these students who are high school age, if they do sign up for the Department of Rehabilitation, I know that the Department of Rehabilitation also will enable them to receive low vision examinations by eye doctors, and yes. they can then purchase glasses, sunglasses, telescopes, magnifiers, and also, they may also receive an assistive technology evaluation where they may then receive computers or video magnifiers, braille note takers, other things that they may need to work. And then the Department of Rehabilitation also funds for these programs, transition programs. And I just think it, it's just really, really wonderful that our country does this for these students. I, I do have to say, having been a rehabilitation counselor for close to nine years, that um, like reaching out to students or parents for the first time about blindness and vision loss, which isn't always a, a fun subject to, to embrace if you're newly visually impaired or have never really been around blind folks, same goes with departments of rehabilitation. It's so hard. It has been very difficult, I should say, for rehab to engage students in the voc rehab process because the first words out of mom and dad's mouth was, my son doesn't have a drug problem. He doesn't need to go to rehab. And so immediately I had to explain what rehab is. And, and that really is true. And it's no joke. And it's, 
I, I chuckle, but I don't because it, it's it's not that kind of rehab, and I have to quickly explain. Think of it as a vocational training program, and I have to almost remove um, the word rehab from the discussion and the word blindness from the discussion until we get can get them comfortable with just where we're at before they start hearing those words that are, are uncomfortable. Wow, that is so true. That is so true. You know, the names could often scare people away before they even understand it, but that is so great. Uh, Richard, can you give that telephone number of yours again? That was an 888 888-400-4522, and um, I, I dare I not say it's not the number on your screen. Uh, <laughs> um, 888-400-4522, extension 460, and uh, we have several programs throughout California, and in some cases, Vogue uh, Rehab will, in other states, will refer to our programs in some examples of New Mexico and, and Nevada and Hawaii have in Alaska have sent students to junior blind programs, so it's a it's a good organization. It's not the only organization to be fair. We've got Center for the Partially Sighted, Braille Institute in Southern California, just to name a few. And there's there's so many more nonprofits up and down the state and nationwide that provide programs for youth and young adults. Um, I know the Foundation for the Blind in Arizona is pretty big. Um, the scholars, there are scholarships to the consumer organizations, ACB and NFB. Um, there, there's a lot of mentoring programs, and, and I didn't even have time to tell you about the mentoring program, but in short, Dr. Bill, it's called REACH, Realizing Education and Career Hopes, and it's a program that we do our best to connect high school students to adults who are blind mentors out there who are doing work that we want the students um, to know more about in hopes that they may follow on that same path or do similar work. Wow, that is so amazing. Well, gosh, this is really such helpful information. And uh, can you stay on the line if anybody has any questions? Certainly. Okay. Well, thank you. So all of you who are listening, if any of you have any questions for Richard regarding transition programs or other experiences he's experienced in terms of helping these kids, uh, go ahead and unmute your phone by pressing star six, and we could take some questions. Okay, so press star six to unmute your phone if you have any questions. And as we're doing this, I just want to remind everybody that this podcast is going to be recorded, and it is something that you would be able to share to other schools and teachers or other young folks so they could hear everything that Richard has to offer here. And uh, we'll have this podcast up at the CCLVI website at www.cclvi.org. And also at AIRSLA, which is www.airsla.org. Okay, any questions out there? Does anybody have any questions? Okay, well, I guess, Richard, you've done a, a fantastic job of sharing so much information in a short amount of time. And again, as well, thank always, you, Dr. I, oh, it's my pleasure, and I really, really appreciate you being on the show. And Mr. Dick Burden from Airs LA, I appreciate you very, very much for recording this. And again, we'll have this posted up in the coming days. And I hope to see all of you again next month when we talk more about low vision. Good night, everybody.